All right, let's grab a seat. We're going to be into our message series today called Kingdom Marriages. And I say, have a seat. And some of you guys, it's been hard to find this morning. We've got people over in the lobby over here in the overflow. We've got people over in the overflow out there. So everybody, let's give those in the overflow areas a big hand today for doing that. Got chairs in the back. So we're glad you can find a seat today, at least most of you. And I'm just going to start off by asking a question. Is there anyone here, when you were a kid, you grew up, you, you, you dreamed about growing up one day, about meeting the right person, about falling in love, about getting married, and then having a horrible, horrible marriage? Is there anybody here that that was your dream as a kid? Anybody have that dream? Okay. I didn't think there was. But how many of you guys know that happens all the time, right? People have a dream to grow up and get married, and then we have horrible marriages all the time. And, and it doesn't take very long to, I mean, I just went out on Google, because that's where you can find all good stuff, right? And I went out there, and I just thought, what's some good marriage advice? If I'm going to be preaching on marriage, I should probably consult Google, because that's <laughs> what you should do. And so I found some advice out there, some of it's... Uh, what I consider not very great advice, but I'll just share some of it with you. Uh, somebody said this, that marriage is a relationship in which one person is always right and the other is the husband. <laughs> I don't know how it works in your marriage, but I don't consider that to be great advice. Another one says this, math after marriage is simple. If you have $20 and your wife has $5, she has $25. <laughs> if you haven't figured out how to do that new math, that's how that works. Um, then also this one, never go to bed angry. I thought that was good, but then it continued. It said, stay up and fight all night. <laughs> How about this one? The best way to get your, most husbands to do something is to suggest that perhaps they're too old to do it. <laughs> I don't know about you. There might be some truth to that one. I'm not saying it's a good route to go, but how many of you guys would say that probably works? It's manipulation, but it probably works to some degree. Uh, but, you know, it's not all bad advice out there. There's actually some good advice out there uh, that, that could be helpful in your marriage. Some of the good advice I found was, was this. Honor your relationship sense of we over me. That's not bad, right? I mean, understand there's two in this relationship. Uh, start discussion softly because 96% of the time when a discussion begins poorly because of tone or because of volume or because of the words chosen, 96% of the time if you start it off wrong, it will end wrong. Now we'll talk about communication in marriage and stuff later on, but that's not bad. That's a good piece of advice. Um, how about this one? I thought this was pretty good. It's express appreciation to your spouse every single day. Now that's a pretty good piece of advice. Now, Here's the thing about good advice. That, that's all fine. There's a lot of bad advice out there. There's a lot of good advice out there. But here, here's what I want you to understand. Good advice won't sustain your marriage in the hard times. Because it's just good advice. Good advice um, really doesn't create lasting marriages. Good advice doesn't create God-honoring marriages. It can be helpful towards that end, but it doesn't create them. Good advice definitely doesn't create kingdom marriages. So here's what I want to suggest today. I want to suggest that we're asking the wrong question. Because a lot of us are asking this question, how do we have a good marriage? 
And if you're married today, that may be a question you've asked before. If you're not married today, I want you to understand, maybe you're single and you want to be married, there's going to be stuff in here for you. If you're single and you don't ever want to be married, maybe you were and you're like, that was it for me, you know, I'm done with that. Uh, I want you to understand, you need to be leaning in and listening for the, for the God nuggets for you, because there's some stuff here from the Bible that's going to be for you too. But we're asking the wrong question. If you're married today saying, how do I have a good marriage? I believe the question we need to be asking is this. What does a marriage look like in the kingdom of God? Because what we're not ta- we're not talking about just a good marriage. When we, I believe we're believers in this place. Most of us are believers. We follow Jesus. So you can look at good advice all day long, and it's still just good advice. It's not bad advice, but it's just good advice. You can pick up books. Listen, I've read a ton of Christian marriage books that's just good advice. There's not bad advice. It's just good advice. But we need to really be asking the question, what does a marriage look like in the kingdom of God? And to do that, we have to go to scripture and we have to look at it from a God perspective. So Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31 is a good place to start because the apostle Paul is quoting back to the original, the very first marriage really that happened in the Garden of Eden. And he's talking about this. It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That word hold fast literally in your translation may say cleave or it literally means to be glued to. Okay, so to hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is what happened at the very first marriage in the Garden of Eden. There's something amazing that happened. He goes goes on and he says, this is a mystery, and I speak concerning Christ and the church. He's using this as an analogy of what it looks like to have a marriage, a uh, God-honoring marriage, and then the relationship between Christ and the church. But he says, it's a mystery because the two have become one flesh. This is unlike any other relationship on the planet. So I want you guys to write this down or get this in your mind or get this in your heart Because a kingdom marriage is a covenant marriage. That's different than any other type of relationship on the planet. A kingdom marriage is a covenant marriage. What's a covenant marriage? What what does that look like? We have to look at covenant. You know, all throughout scripture, we see God making covenants. God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Abraham. We see even in the Hebrew culture that they would make covenants one with another between other people. And so as we look at this covenant that God made with Abraham, he said, you're going to be a father of many nations. And Abraham says, Abraham says, I don't even have kids. I'm too old to have kids. And God says, it's going to happen. Abraham later on begins to doubt. And then God comes and makes a covenant with Abraham to prove that he's going to do his end of the deal. And so he tells Abraham to get uh, to get some, uh, an animal, to split it in half, to put the two pieces, on one on each side. And God begins to, make, to cut a covenant, literally, with Abraham. We see this in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And he made a covenant in that moment. Here's what it looked like. You see, Hebrew, the Hebrew word for covenant or to make a covenant is literally not, it doesn't say to make covenant, it says to cut covenant. And so they would, it was forbidden for God, God forbade them to cut human flesh. And so a, an animal sacrifice was substituted. This was a foreshadowing of Jesus becoming our substitute. I want you to see the symbolism all through this. 
And so a covenant was cut and a substitute was made and the two pieces were laid on each side. And as they would go, they would make a figure eight around the two pieces. And as they would walk between the two pieces, they would begin to say oaths to one another. This would be what would happen in a covenant ceremony. And the Bible talks about God. You could see that that flame going through the pieces and God was making a covenant with Abram. And a lot of times in these covenants, they would pledge three things. They would pledge loyalty for life, protection unto the death, and provision unto the exhaustion of personal resources. This is very common in Hebrew covenants. And so in one sense, this is what God did with Abraham. And he made a covenant. Loyalty for life, protection unto death, provision to the exhaustion of personal resources. And blood was always spilled when a covenant was cut. Then we come to this marriage covenant. I want you to understand that there are different types of covenants. When God made a covenant with Noah and with Abraham, it was a vertical covenant. It was a covenant between a man and God. It was a covenant between humanity and God. But then we come to this marriage covenant. And a marriage covenant is not just a horizontal covenant. It's not just a vertical covenant. What makes a marriage covenant very unique is that it is a horizontal and a vertical covenant at the same time. It involves two people and God. It's a horizontal and a vertical. And in the marriage covenant, blood is always involved in the covenant if things are done the God way. Because if two people save themselves for marriage, when the marriage is consummated, blood is spilled and therefore the covenant is cut. It's a picture of what God does in the covenant of marriage. And you could say this, that the requirements of the pledges of the oath of covenant that are made in Hebrew covenants are also made in the marriage covenant. When you stand before God and with each other, you pledge these three things, loyalty for life, protection unto the death, and provision, even if it costs me everything, till death do us part. In sickness and in health and all those things, we're pledging a covenant. I don't know if you realize the weightiness of it. So I'm going to take you back just over 23 years ago when my wife and I, we stood before a congregation of people and we stood with each other before God. And just to brace yourself for the shock of what you're about ready to see, just hang on. Here's a picture of that day right now. Let's just throw it up there. There it is. Yeah, I'm like half the man I was, I am, I don't know. I'm like, I've got more hair though. That's like, there's a, (laughs) it's really me guys. I'm telling you the truth. It's really me. I look completely different. Becca looks exactly the same. How does that work? What's up with that, you know? But on that day, We stood in front of a group of people, and we made a horizontal and a vertical covenant. And let me share with you the words I said that day as part of my covenant oath. I said these words, literally. I said these words. In the presence of God and according to his word, I leave my father and mother and join myself to you to be a husband to you. I purpose in my heart to be the man of God and the husband that God has called me to be. I shall esteem you higher than myself. I will love you as Christ loves the church, giving my life for yours. I will lead and protect you as we share our life with God who gave us to one another. From this moment forward, we shall be one. Can you guys hear all the covenant happening in there? Loyalty for life, protection under the death, provision. If I break that covenant with her, 
I've also broken covenant with God. That's not to bring condemnation on anyone that's been divorced or anything like that. I just want you to hear that a kingdom marriage is a covenant marriage. It's a deep, deep relationship unlike any other relationship on the planet. So how do we maintain or enter in or live in such a deep, heavy covenant that's unlike any other relationship on the planet? How do we do that? in the kingdom of God. Well, in, the king, in a kingdom marriage, there are different roles that we have as, as husbands and wives. Now, we're gonna get into some things today that may challenge where you came from, that may challenge what you've been taught, that may cause you to, to wonder, well, you know, what does the Bible say about this? And so I'm gonna hit it head on. Let's deal with it in Ephesians chapter five, verse 22. Let's back up just a little bit. And this is a very famous passage of scripture, and it says this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How many of you guys, just be honest for just a second. When you hear this passage of scripture, there's something in you that just pushes back just a little bit, right? That could be for a number of reasons. That could be because of what you saw growing up. That could be because uh, many different things. So we're just gonna deal with the elephant in the room because there's two ideas. I want you to understand there's two ideas presented in this passage of scripture. The first idea is wives submit to husbands. The second idea that's presented is husbands sacrificing basically their life for their wife. So you've got the idea of submit and sacrifice. Before we get too worked up about these words, I want you to understand something about these two different ideas. These two different ideas, submit for wives, sacrifice for husbands, lead to the same fruit. They lead to serving and loving one another. So the end result of both of these ideas are to serve one another. So if that's the truth, then why would Paul use two different ideas to communicate, one for husbands and one for wives? I believe it, that as I was listening and studying for this, Pastor Jimmy Evans had a great take on this as to why, a very interesting take as to why the Apostle Paul and ultimately God used two different ideas to communicate the same, really the same end result. So let's watch Pastor Jimmy Evans. Men and women are both given different roles in Ephesians 5 because we both have different issues. Now, in the Garden of Eden, um, Adam and Eve both sinned, but they sinned in different ways. And the reason that the roles in Ephesians 5 are different is because Eve had issues that Adam didn't have, and Adam had issues that Eve didn't have. And let me give you an example of this. Now, I'm going to pick on everybody, so just be patient. Um, start with the women. Okay, so what are, women, what are women's issues? And I'm talking about in relationship. I'm just in relationship. Uh, women are independent. Uh, women, women think that they can make good decisions without their husbands. Some women do. That's kind of the, the general sin nature of women. Relationally, Well, how do I know that? Well, so the devil comes into the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are there. And he comes and he talks to Eve. Okay, so he doesn't want to talk to Adam because the devil's strategy is always to divide and conquer. God unites and conquers. The devil divides and conquers. So the devil slithers up and begins to talk to Eve by herself. And he says, has God surely said you can't eat from that tree? And they have the conversation that they have. And so Eve decides to eat the fruit 
And Adam's standing right there and she never talks to him. How do we know that Adam's standing right there? She ate the fruit and handed it to him. And God was about to walk up. God lived with them in the Garden of Eden. And it was the time of the day for God to walk up. How do we know? Because they ate the fruit and he walked up. <laughs> so when the devil was tempting Eve, all Eve had to say was, hey, listen, I'm going to talk this over with my husband. God's about to walk up. I'm going to talk it over with God. And I'll get back to you on this for eating the fruit thing. That's not what she did. She ate fruit without ever talking to her husband, without ever talking to God. Okay. So what's Adam's problem? Apathy. Men, men's problem, their sin nature is apathy. How do we know that? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, God commanded Adam to take dominion over all the creeping things that crept on the earth. God, the, the word dominion there and the word subdue, God commanded Adam to subdue the earth. Those are violent terms that mean subjugate by force. And by the way, did you know when God in Genesis 1 told Adam to take dominion over every creeping thing that crept on the earth, he was giving him a heads up of what the devil was about to do? He was telling him what about what was about to happen. So Adam is in the Garden of Eden, okay? And Eve's standing right here, and this creeping thing crept in and began to argue against God's word and tried to talk his wife into rebelling against God. And Adam's standing right there. What does Adam do? Nothing. He just... <laughs> he was watching ESPN, Eden Sports Network. He, he just... Out to lunch. All Adam had to do was say, honey, honey, wait, just let me kill that snake over there. And stand up and be a man of God and take dominion over that creeping thing. That's, that's all God told you to do. But he didn't do it. He just stood there. So Ephesians 5 does this. Ephesians 5 comes to independent women and puts an extra layer of accountability on them. and says, you don't act without your husband any more than you would act without Jesus. You're a team. Now you stay a part of that team. Ephesians 5 comes to apathetic men, and Ephesians 5 says twice as much to men as it does to women. You lay your life down for her. You nourish and cherish her the way you would your own body. The Ephesians 5 comes to apathetic men and gives them an extra layer of responsibility. Listen, Ephesians 5 crucifies your sin nature and prepares you to be married in a victorious Christian marriage. But when your flesh, remember I told you that I've never had a Christian person who liked Ephesians 5? You know why? It's your sin nature. When you, when you read Ephesians 5 and it says, you know, for you to submit or to respect your husband, or it says lay your life down and something rises up, that's your sin nature. And that will destroy every relationship in your life. And if we're going to have the kind of marriage that God wants us to have, as husbands, we have to say, I am going to lay my life down for her. I'm, I am not going to be a checked out, apathetic, insensitive, passive man who just sits here and watches the devil dismantle my home while I'm watching television. It's not going to happen. And as a woman, say, I'm not going to be a woman who gets negative and tears my family apart with my attitudes and with my mouth. I am going to be a woman of God and I'm going to respect my husband. And when you have two people come together, both committed to Ephesians 5, I'm telling you, it is God's perfect plan for marriage. You have a 100% chance of success in marriage. Every person can do this. It is not complicated. It just simply takes a simple respect for the Word of God and for us to live our lives committed to doing what the Bible says. Somebody say amen. Man, now, some of that is challenging to hear. How many of you guys just admit that's kind of challenging to hear sometimes, right? Again, because we have all of these different ideas 
as to what, what happens in all of that. And we're going to get into that just a little bit. But I just want you to understand what we're not talking about here is personality types. Because you can be a guy that's laid back and not passive at the same time. We're not talking about personality types. You can, you can be a, a lady that's out front and still not, not be, here's what I'm trying to say. We cannot use a personality type as an excuse to sin. Because laid back is not a sin, but laid back can lead to sin. Being, being out front or, or aggressive is not necessarily sin, but can, it can lead to a sin. You can't use a personality type as an excuse for bad behavior. That's what is being said here. And, and so I want to be very, very clear about something, though. We're talking about a kingdom marriage here. When we're talking about a kingdom, we're not talking about the world's way of marriage. We're talking about God's way of marriage. And in God's way of marriage, I want to be very, very clear about this, that men and women, and let me just say it even in a marriage, husbands and wives are equal before God. I want you to understand that. We are equal before God, but there's a myth out there that equal means that, that men and women to be equal have to be exactly alike. That's not the case. You don't have to be exactly alike, yet be equal before God. And there's this myth out there, and let me just prove it to you theologically. How many of you guys have heard of this idea called the Trinity, right? We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. All three are God, yet three, it's a mystery, the Bible says. It kind of blows our mind to try to think about it, but let me put it this way. God the Father is no less God than God the Son. God the Son is no less God than God the Spirit. God the Spirit is no less God than God the Father. They are all completely equally God, and yet they do different things. So let me prove it to you even further. God the Father did not die on the cross for your sins. Yet God the Father is completely God. The, God the Son, Jesus, did not stick around at Pentecost and fulfill that role because there's different things. They're, they're different but equal. I want you to understand that in a marriage, that's also the way it works. We're completely equal before God, and yet we have different uh, different perspectives, different ideas. We're made different, and we're all made in God's image, and yet we're different. How is that possible? It's a mystery, but yet we're equal before God. And then we run into these difficult scriptures that we have to wrestle with because we don't really know what to do with because there's tension there, and we run into this one. I've already read it. It kind of slipped under the radar for you. It says this in Ephesians 5, 23. It says, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So what does that mean? And here's the problem with this idea. A lot of people have heard this idea of a husband is head of the wife and it's caused problems. And here's why it's caused problems. One, it's been mis misunderstood. It's also been misused. It's been, mis it's been applied wrongly. It's been, it's been uh, we've had bad examples of it before. And so we don't really know. We see this idea of, of husband is ahead of the wife, and we begin to interpret what that means based on our experiences or based on our examples. So what does that really mean? Because the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about it. So if we want to look at it from this perspective, and let me just tell you how I look at it, okay, as I'm looking at scriptures and I've studied a lot of this. I look at this as an example of leadership. Husbands, I believe that there's a certain element, just like Pastor uh, Jimmy said, that there's a certain level of responsibility that we have as husbands. 
And if there's a problem in my marriage, whether I caused it or not, I believe I have an extra layer of responsibility to try to work towards solutions for it. In my family, I, I believe God's placed that extra layer of responsibility on me as a husband. And I believe that I'm supposed to lead in that way. But what does that mean? Because a lot of people have done it wrongly. And here's how I've seen it, even in people in my, around my own life growing up, I saw this. And I saw it look like this, that one would dominate the other. That, that maybe a husband would dominate the spouse and, and, and try to take control and try to, to, to make every decision and try to not give somebody a voice. I saw that happen. Here's what I want to make clear. Husbands, wives, everybody. Leadership is not the same thing as lordship. And I've seen too many times this used in the wrong way to try to lord over someone else. And in a God marriage, in a kingdom marriage, there is not one person that gets to dominate or be the boss over anyone else. Is anybody, everybody clear on that one? In fact, in human relationships, good leadership, healthy leadership never puts somebody down. How many of you guys have a leadership role in some area of your life? Maybe you're at a job or anything like that. You guys know a good leader never puts his people down or her people down. A good leader always empowers to lift up, right? And if you want to be a good leader in your marriage, it is, has nothing to do with putting an, another person down so that you can be higher. It has everything to do with lifting the other person up so that they can go higher. That's good leader. Are you guys getting this or are you guys all mad at me? I'm just, just trying to test the waters here. I don't know. <laughs> leadership is not the same thing as lordship. And so here's what I want you to say. If leading in a marriage is anything, guys, here's what it's going to be. It means lifting your spouse up. It means sacrificing first. It means serving first. It means going. Leadership is by example. It's not by lording over somebody. It's by example. It means going there first. Jesus is the picture of the husband in this analogy. And how many of you guys know about Jesus that Jesus said he didn't come to be served, but to serve? And we know that Jesus went first in the relationship between him and us because it said even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he sacrificed first. Husbands, if we are to lead in a marriage, that's what that means. If our end result of sacrificing leads to serving, then that means if we want to lead, we have to do that first. And it's not based on laid back. If you're laid back, that's great. But you still don't have to be passive if you're laid back. You can still initiate and lead first in sacrifice. That's what that means. And, and wives respond. How about you, wives, if, if, man, your husband was leading first, leading by example, serving first, sacrificing well, that would be easy to, easier to be a part of that relationship, right? Okay? That's, that's true. That's the way it's supposed to work. Now, Joseph and Megan are leaders in our church, and they uh, are part of our ministry team, and uh, they also do a lot of premarital counseling in our church and, and serve in that area and have a passion for marriage. And I just asked them if they would share a couple of examples of how this looks like in their marriage, just on the one area of spiritual things, okay? We could talk about a lot of things, but would you give them a big hand as they come up and they'd share just a couple examples? All right. Um, God has given me a helper in Megan that is so important. And 
because she's that helper, I can, I can trust her mainly because I know that she hears from God. And, and because of that, I actually I seek her counsel in things. Um, I have a lot of, and an example of that is this. I have a lot of difficult decisions in, in my job, in my work, and they can be stressful. But I know I don't have to make those alone. So I'll actually bring those decisions and ask Megan to pray with me on those. Um, and it is so vital for that unity that we have. Um, another thing is before I go on business trips, I may be getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning to catch an early flight. And as I'm trying to be quiet not to wake anybody up, if you guys have ever been through this, I mean, she'll wake up and I'll be like, honey, you don't have to. And she'll, no, I want to pray over you. I, I'm not asking her to do this. She's actually coming and saying, let me pray over you before you leave. And it is so important to keep that. And that unity that we have there just brings so much um, communication even. When When I'm in the process of making large decisions, I will go to Megan and ask her, what her thoughts are on things. Um, I've seen it done the opposite many times, and, and I found the times that I don't ask her opinion, because I'm not perfect at this, but I've learned that just like God gave us the Holy Spirit, he calls Megan my helper. And man, when I listen and actually seek her advice, I usually get a pretty good response. And so I would say, she is my most vital resource outside of the Holy Spirit. And just as it is important for Joseph to know that um, I'm here to help him, it's just as much important for me to know that he is actively seeking to lead our family spiritually. And one example of that, I just want to kind of paint a picture of what our house looks like. We have a 1970s house, and we have one of those formal living rooms. But when we were looking at the houses, you know, you walk in, and and it has that formal stuff, you know, the couch that has the plastic over it, you know. And and you can't walk in there because two weeks ago somebody vacuumed, and it still has the stripes in the carpet, you know, one of those rooms. And when we moved in, we said, no, we're not going to have one of those rooms. Instead of a room that we can't go into, we're going to have a room that that's where we're going to meet with God. And we have some recliners in there, and he's got his brown leather recliner. And so we'll just be hanging out as a family, and all of a sudden, Joseph will just disappear. And he doesn't announce anything. He just disappears. And we'll be like, where'd he go? And we'll go into that front room, and he'll be in his leather recliner reading his Bible, studying. His journal will be out. His Bible will be out, and he'll be just actively studying, seeking. Um, He may be praying. He may be sitting in his chair praying. He may be kneeling at his chair praying. He may be on his face, on the floor, praying. And we see that. Our family, we walk in there, we see it. We are like, he's meeting with God right now. And it's something that we see. It's something that's normal in our home. And so it's really easy to follow him because I know he's actively seeking God and it's really a wonderful thing to follow him those are two ways that kind of in our home uh, but I want to share a story about uh, a gentleman here 
in our church recently that I had an opportunity to minister with. His name's Wade. I don't know. If, is, is he in this service? There he is right there. I, I'm so impressed with what God's doing. It was, it was about three weeks ago, I think, Pastor Sean had um, given a, an opportunity for people to come up and get prayer after the service like we do many times. And Wade came and, and myself and another gentleman prayed with him. And just the act of coming even shows leadership that he's willing to say, hey, you know what? I need, I need prayer. And God touched him mightily there. And then as we're talking, we find out that, you know, he goes, no, I ha- I found it. he needs to be baptized. And he goes, we go, okay, let's figure out when we can, when we can do this. Well, it's cold outside, guys, okay? And so we're trying to figure out, okay, do we put the baptismal up here in the next week? And he goes, no, I don't want to wait. I want to get baptized right now. And I'm like, okay, let's figure this out. And so the only thing we could figure out was either haul him up to Smithville Lake, dunk him in, or Tom DeWitt has a pool in his backyard, and we'd have to pull the cover off and put him in the ice water, okay? We thought, so I talked to him, and he goes, yeah, we're doing it. I said, okay. So that was on Sunday. Wednesday, we have a prayer meeting here at 7 o'clock that anybody's welcome to show up to. Um, 8 o'clock, he shows up with his wife and young daughter, um, pulled him out of bed, and follows me out to Tom DeWitt's house. And we get into the ice-cold water. I think we have a picture. And there he is. And, you know... It's freezing. Okay, I wanted to get out of that water. <laughs> he goes under, comes back up, and God just touches him in a mighty way. And then as he comes up out of that water, um, his wife's watching him take these steps of obedience to God. And she goes, I want to be baptized. Well, she, she did. Yeah, praise God. Uh, she, she didn't bring any clothes, so she went and got some clothes from Becky and We'll go ahead and get a picture, but as we're, as we're coming in, Tom and I both hear, no, you're supposed to baptize her. And so this, this man who is young in his faith, doesn't know a ton, but is just saying, God, I want to lead. I want to do what you want, baptizes his wife, and it's just awesome to watch. You don't have to know much to lead. And so, yeah, let's praise God again on that. Amen. You don't have to be a spiritual giant to start doing this. And I want you to understand, uh, sometimes I've seen in relationships, we hear something like that, like a guy, you know, husband lead or something. And, and sometimes in a relationship, a spouse can get discouraged because maybe uh, you as a wife, you've maybe been following Jesus longer than your husband, or maybe you have more time to read books or listen to podcasts, and you feel like maybe there's a mismatch. I want you to not be discouraged because your husband is simply supposed to start wherever they are. It doesn't take a lot, guys, to find that front room and just start praying. You don't have to know a lot. You don't have to be a scholar to do that. You don't have to have a bunch of, it doesn't take a lot. You just start from where you are. Anyone can do that. And you might be here and you might, like I say, you might be a little discouraged. You might be saying, well, pastor, I would do that if my wife was that way. Pastor, I would do that if my husband was anything like that. 
but my husband's not. You don't understand. Here's the kicker. The Bible instructs both sides to do this, whether the other side is doing it or not. We're supposed to serve our way in our marriage, to love our way in our marriage, whether our husband is doing his part, whether our wife is doing their part, it doesn't matter. There's no, you're off the hook if he's not doing his part. You're off the hook if she's not doing her part. We're supposed to do that. Now, I'm going to share a story. I'm going to have Pastor Jimmy Evans share one more story. And I want you just, just to listen to this story because it's a very unique way to put it, okay? So I'm just setting up this story. It's a very unique story. But I believe by the end of this story, you'll get the point of the story. And he's talking specifically to husbands, but I believe it applies to husbands and wives. And so, again, as you listen to this story, it's a very serious story, but it's very uniquely put. But I believe there's a very powerful point at the end of this story. So let's watch. There's a story. I don't know if this is a true story, and there are different versions of this story. But I'll give you the version that I heard first that I like. Um, on a Polynesian island in the Pacific years ago, there was a man named Johnny Lingo. And on this island, you know, there weren't a lot of wealthy people on the island. Most of the people were fishermen or farmers or stuff like that. Johnny was a very successful man on the island. And he was single. And uh, he wanted to get a wife. And on this particular island, the way that you got a wife is you bought her from her family with cows. And uh, you went to the father, and you went to the father, and you asked for a woman's hand in marriage, and you offered him so many cows. Most women went for a cow or two. Uh, the record was four cows. Uh, one woman got, the, she was called a trophy wife. She got four cows. And uh, so there was a man on the island named Moko, and Moko was a very evil guy, very abusive. He had a daughter named Mahala, and he was very abusive to her, beat her down. Uh, emotionally and verbally abusive all of her life. And Mahala was not an attractive girl. She walked with her shoulders slumped over and her head slumped over and her hair down in her face. And uh, her dress was very disheveled. You know, she just wasn't an attractive girl. And, uh, but Moko wanted to marry her off, but he didn't have a lot of promise it was going to happen. So one day there was a knock on Moko's door and he opened it and it was Johnny, it was Johnny Lingo. And he said, what do you want, Johnny? And Johnny said, I'm here to marry Mahala. I want to purchase her from you. And he said, really? And he was hoping to get one cow, you know, for Mahala. And he said, Johnny, what are you willing to give for Mahala? And he said, I'll give you eight cows. And Mocha said, is this, is this a joke, Johnny? And Johnny said, there's eight cows right there. I'll give you eight cows for Mahala. He immediately, Moko immediately became one of the wealthiest guys on the island. And so here, here goes Mahala. She goes home with Johnny. And Moko gets eight cows. You know, he's a bad guy, but he just became rich and all is well. But it bothered Moko. It bothered Moko what had just happened. He didn't get it. He just couldn't understand why Johnny would pay him eight cows for a woman he could have bought for a cow. So a couple of years went by and Moko couldn't take it any longer. So he went to visit Johnny way on the other side of the island. He visited Johnny and he knocked on Johnny's front door and Mahala came to the door. And she opened the door, and she was ravishing. Beautiful, black, black hair with flowers in it. Her face was just gorgeous. She's standing straight with her shoulders back, this beautiful white dress on that just showed how beautiful her body was and sandals, and she was just strikingly gorgeous. And he didn't even recognize her, and she said, Hello, Daddy. He said, Mahala? She said, Yeah. I want to, he said, I want to talk to Johnny. 
So Johnny came to the door and Moko said, Johnny, you and I both know you could have bought Mahala for one cow. And this has bothered me for two years. I want you to tell me, why did you pay eight cows for a woman that you could have gotten for one? And Johnny looked at Moko. He said, it's very simple. I just always wanted an eight cow wife. And Moko said, that's it? Johnny said, that's it. And Moko went home. And Johnny told one of his friends one day, he said, the most important thing in my life is for Mahala to wake up every day and know she's the most valuable woman on this island. In the presence of her father, who did not cherish her, she was a beaten down, unattractive woman who would have never achieved anything in life. But in the presence of Johnny, she flourished. And the Bible says, you cherish your wife. You nourish her and you cherish her. I spent the first three years of our marriage, like Moko, using Karen and beating her down with my mouth. I've spent the last 40 years of our marriage loving her and cherishing her. And I live with a lioness of God, a woman who has fully become. And the job of every man is to lay your life down for your wife. You are married to God's daughter, and she's an egg cow woman. You need to tell her that. And I say to every single woman, don't sell yourself short to any man who's looking for a discount wife. You make him pay the price. You're worth eight cows. You're worth a lot more than that. I'm just using the <laughs> Polynesian term here. I share that story because I knew you'd remember it because I remembered it pretty well. And you guys get the point of the story. Your spouse ought to wake up knowing they're the most valuable person in your world. I believe one of the, and I've heard this a long time ago, and it really stuck with me, that one of the purposes of marriage is, is this, and I'll put it up on the screen, that God gave you your mate as a gift so that he could show them how much he loves them through you. You realize that part of your purpose of your marriage is to show your spouse how much God loves them, and he wants to use you to do it. That's what a kingdom marriage looks like. It's not putting someone down. It's lifting the other up. Is there, I hope everybody's catching this message today. It's not putting the other one down. It's not dominant. If there's any leading, it's to lead to lift up, not to put down. I want to have the worship team come back at this point. How many of you guys have heard? And as they do, I'm going to share some stats with you. How many of you guys have heard the stat that almost one in every two marriages end in divorce, Right? We've even heard stats like this, that there's no difference between Christians and non-Christians. But you know that's not true. Those stats aren't true. 
53% of very happy couples agree with this statement, very happy couples, God is the center of our marriage. That's compared to 7% of struggling couples. So in other words, of all the struggling couples, only 7% of them can say God's at the center. Of active conservative Protestants who attend, listen to this, who attend church regularly, people. Do <laughs> you realize that you, if you do that, you are 35% less likely to get divorced? It's not the same. You see, many people say they believe in God, and many people say God is at the center of their marriage, but when it comes to the fruit in their life, it's not the same. And I just want to challenge you. If you put God in the center of your marriage, you have a kingdom marriage, a covenant marriage, you got a, you got a 100% chance of making it. And you've heard that scripture. Maybe you've heard it at a wedding. I use it at almost every wedding that I do. Out of Ecclesiastes, it talks about, in, verse, or in chapter four, verse nine, it says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who's alone when he falls and, he ha- and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And this is important. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Remember, I told you that a covenant marriage is not just a vertical covenant and it's not just a horizontal covenant. It's both. It is a threefold cord. When God is at the center of your marriage, you have two people and God. That cord is not easily broken. But we've got to be honest. Is God at the center of our marriage? Do we have a kingdom marriage? Not just are we trying to go for a good marriage, but do we have a kingdom marriage? So would everyone stand up with me? Bow your heads and close your eyes as we just come before the Lord. And especially, let me just talk to married people for just a moment. I want to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask Becca to come up real quick. And I'm going to ask you, if you're married, to just grab the hand of your spouse. And I understand how it is. Listen, I'm a pastor, but I'm not immune to being a human. So <laughs> I understand that some of you guys just walked in under, and you know, you just fought on the way in. I get it. Maybe you're in a season where things are rough. And the last thing you want to do right now is grab the hand of your spouse. But here you are in service, hearing about marriage. I believe you just take this act of faith that God could do something right now. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes, we're just going to pray over our marriages right now. And if you're not married right now, just begin to pray for those around you. Maybe you have hope of being married one day. Begin to pray for your future spouse. Lord, we just speak over marriages right now. We just speak over covenant marriages right now, that we would have kingdom covenant marriages. Lord, I pray over husbands right now that we would sacrifice for our spouse, for our wife, just as you did for the church, giving our life. That we would lead by lifting up. That we would lead by example. That we would lead by sacrificing and serving first. That we would carry the responsibility that if there's an issue in our relationships, that we're going to be the first. We're going to be the ones to carry that load. We're going to shoulder that with your help. Lord, I speak over wives right now that if there's any part right now that is having trouble respecting or loving a husband, maybe they're not honoring of it, Lord, I pray that there would be a supernatural love right now that would come in. That they would begin to see their husband, not through the natural eyes, but begin to see them in the spirit, begin to see them how you see them.
be able to love with a supernatural love, not a love that comes with our own strength or a love that we can muster up or a love based on what we get in return or a love based on their actions, but simply a love that chooses to love no matter what the outcome. Lord, we thank you right now for our spouse and we thank you for the opportunity to get to show them how much you love them. Lord, let us be like that example that our spouse would feel like the most valuable person in our world. Lord, we declare that right now. We thank you so much, Jesus, for going first, that even while we were still sinners, that you died on the cross, that you took our place, that in that covenant, you were the covenant sacrifice, that you took our place and your blood was spilled and a a sacrifice, a covenant was made with us that we could have grace and that you rose from the dead and give us life. And today I pray for all the marriages in this room and all the future marriages. We speak that they are going to be flourishing in the kingdom of God. And we declare that in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's worship God one more time.